All right, people, we're back. It is October 2nd. September is officially over. We are into a new month. We only have three months left in 2022. It's still kind of hard to believe how fast this year When I'm joined once again by my good friend Joe of Guy at the Movies. Joe, how have you been? Oh, just wonderful, Dom. Living the dream. How have you been? Of course, I, I couldn't agree with that more. Just living the dream, trying to get by in the current state that we're in. We're here to talk about possibly, it's hard to believe, I didn't think this was possible, but a studio comedy that, I, from what I've understood, is actually doing pretty well in theaters. I mean, I, I thought this was over, you know? I thought the theaters were basically like, yeah, if it's under $300 million, it's not going to theaters anymore, and yet here we are. I mean, it's, it's kind of crazy, honestly, that we're in this spot. We're here to talk about the brand new comedy, that, that being called Bros, which I think has one of those like, kind of little movies that could stories behind it. And we're here to talk about that and another movie. You know, it's another one of those double hitters that, uh, that, you know, that Joe and I are so famous for. All of that and more on today's episode of the Talking TV Podcast. Stay tuned. All right, we're back with myself, Movie Nerd Reviews, and Joe, Guy at the Movies, latest episode of the Talking TV Podcast. And Joe, I can't believe we're saying it, we actually got a comedy that was released in theaters, and it was actually pretty fucking good on top of all the... I thought that these days were past us. Like, I still remember back in 2018, going to watch Game Night, going to watch Tag, both oh, in yeah. theaters, and having an absolute blast with both of those movies, and... I think it's safe to say that with the exception of maybe Longshot in 2019 and Booksmart also had a little bit of a moment there too. The, the comedy has kind of come and gone as far as that goes. You know, like it's pretty much like streaming has become its new home ultimately. And so you can imagine my surprise when I see the trailer for this movie. Well, first I see like the, you know, the announcement for, you know, this movie Bros starring Billy Eichner. And I'm like, okay, cool. I like Billy Eichner. You know, that could actually be pretty good. And then I see the trailers and I'm like, oh, oh, this is going to be <laughs> one of those where they're, I'm like, they're going for it. Okay. And... Obviously, you know, just given in general the kind of the political climate and everything that's just going on, you know, I'm, I'm, my, my thought going into this was I'm like, I just I want this to be a good movie. For the love of God, yeah. can we just get a good movie overall? And I think suffice it to say, that's exactly what we got here, Joe. I don't know. Like, what, what, what are just kind of like your opening thoughts before we break this movie down further? Yeah, you know, it's funny because thinking about what the last big comedy was to hit theaters, I think immediately about The Lost City this past year with uh, Channing Tatum and Sandra Bullock. Um, but you're right. I mean, they're not putting these movies in theaters anymore. They're throwing them into stream on the streaming. Um, this was a $22 million budget uh, movie. Um, it's not doing so hot in terms of the box office, but the reviews of it are glowing. I mean, I think critics have it at like a 92 on Rotten Tomatoes, if you go by that. Um, but then media score or no cinema score or whatever it is, it's um, people that are leaving the theaters giving it an A. So, like, that's really great for this, which is the first major, it's the first LGBTQ um, romantic comedy from a major studio. Um, and it stars predominantly LGBTQ members. Uh, and I just had a blast with it. It was so much fun because, and we'll get into this, but one of the things that it does so well is it it doesn't, it takes the training wheels off. And it doesn't tiptoe around issues. It just has those conversations. And that's what... I think makes a film feel so genuine and allows you to enjoy it as much as most people are enjoying bros. I couldn't agree more because of the biggest thing that I've complained about consistently, obviously, again, as we've seen just more of an influx of, you know, you know, source material that again, Hollywood deemed like, oh, you know, may not be as family friendly and may not be, you know, as palatable for the mainstream masses. You know, again, we've seen an incredible amount of diverse films and incredible, you know, much more so amount of LGBTQ plus films. But the, the problem for me always came from the fact that it's like, it still feels like they're tiptoeing around it and it still feels like it still feels like they're not actually going like, like they're hinting at it for sure but they're not actually applying it to anything and it just kind of got annoying after a while and a lot of them it just felt like it, it, it you know what it was it felt like more just messaging movies but for the sake of the message rather than actually being like you know feeling important and feeling actually like just well made and this is like the thing about this movie was that it was just it was very upfront. It was very apparent about what it was from the get-go, but it was just, for starters, I, and this is literally the point that I have in order to kick this off, it's a new hit comedy that critics love because 
It's just a great movie, which sounds so crazy and identical to say, because I feel like every one of these podcasts that we have now have to be about something that crazy that happened going on behind the scenes. And the conversation is almost never about the movie itself anymore, because that's just yeah. kind of the media state that we live in right now. And so you can imagine my surprise, like I said, as it was a double feature that I did yesterday. I stayed home all day yesterday. I wasn't feeling very good this past week, so I just I needed a day. I literally didn't leave my apartment all yesterday. I watched Blonde on Netflix, which we're going to get into that later on in the podcast as well, because I have a lot that, that I want to get off my chest about that because I feel like that's another movie that not a lot of people are going to be talking about. And then I watched this. I was like, okay, I'm a little tired. You know, am I going to be able to make this? And I started watching it and I couldn't stop. I just, it was just such an absolute blast, such a joy from start to finish. I don't think there was a single moment where, uh, again, like it's no secret. It's like, it's like, I am not gay. Like, obviously I'm not in that demographic, but like I had an absolute smile on my face from start to finish for this entire movie. Like it's a, it's one of those movies where it's like, I I, I challenge anyone who watches this to not enjoy this. I really, really do. And that's the thing that Bros does really well is I think that it's very accessible to whoever wants to watch it, but it will hit people in different ways. You know, I, I joked around when I was writing my review and when I was talking to Sean last week that there's parts of this where it just feels like a fucking warm hug because you're like, oh, okay, you're recognizing that this crazy shit happens when you're trying to date within the community, uh, you know, and or like the club scenes and stuff, you know, as exacerbated as a lot of that may seem. Like, I remember going to the clubs in Philly where it was like my buddy and I standing there when I first came out, standing there on the side. And it was like the music, everyone's dancing and stuff. And like we're looking and my my buddy just goes, so who are you into? Like, who do you who do you find attractive? And so it's just so funny seeing that on screen because I feel like so many of us had similar experiences and that's not just like a gay club thing. That's a club thing in general. Like you go to these bars and you know, you're, you're scoping out, you're, you're on the prowl. Um, so it, it just really like touched home a lot. And uh, it, it was really, I just think entertaining. Billy Eichner is so freaking funny, uh, but also Luke McFarlane, like not many people are familiar with him because he hasn't had like the takeoff career Recently, the most recent thing he was in um, of note was the another LGBT film on uh, Netflix, Single All the Way, last year. Um, mm, okay. But he he's, was in- He's got one of those faces that looks very, very familiar, like you see yeah. him in a million things, you know? He was in a show back in the day, um, probably like, I think a decade, maybe a little bit more than a decade ago it ended, but it was called Brothers and Sisters on ABC. And this- That's what it I, is. I knew I've seen it before in something. Yeah. And I love this movie or this show. And, you know, it's it's all about a family, but like one of the sons is gay and he marries Luke McFarlane um, in the in the in the uh, series. Um, and that but that was also just like a very good depiction of a relationship that could work, you know. And um, so I it, it, he ha- he has a special place in my heart for that role uh, because I just remember watching that. So seeing him being like, you know, essentially the eye candy is what he was cast as here. Like the guy that they're going after, of course they break that down a little bit as the movie goes on. But I just thought that it was well casted. It was so funny. The jokes were a mile a minute and all over the place. Some of them were, you know, silly when they're, when they're talking about like, you know, hanging a a lesbian in the uh, hall of the, um, (laughs) the LGBT center, like just random. Yeah. Okay. Well, so obviously the biggest thing for me, two of the biggest things, number one, the fact that it was a comedy that actually made me laugh because the thing that I joke about so much of the time is that so many comedies that are made now are just like not funny. And so it's ironic because a couple months ago, well, more than a couple months ago, we were talking about the unbearable weight of massive talent on this podcast. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh my God, a comedy starring Nicolas Cage. That's actually freaking hilarious as far as because of all like, like all the different demographics that it plays to. And here, not only do we have a comedy that's funny, but we have a rom-com that is playing into all of the tropes, but I don't know what it is. There was just something about it where it's like, it just, it's, worked. It just worked. But well, it's, it's so funny because like a couple weeks before I moved into this apartment, I watched Something's Gotta Give with my dad. Something's Gotta Give is one of my dad's favorite movies ever. And he was laughing at every single second. And I'm just watching this movie and I'm recognizing it for what it is and it's entertaining and the acting's good. But all the while I'm just sitting there and being like, this is the stupidest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> all the tropes are just playing into one another. It's almost like, What's that thing? When, what's that thing? What is like a parody of a parody? I don't know what that specific terminology it is, but that's oh God, what it kind yeah. of yeah, something like that. And I was just waiting for that moment to happen in this movie, and I don't know what it was, but it's like it, every once in a while, I mean, you get those comedies that just feel so true to life and just feel so real. And, like, that's exactly what I got from this movie. And, like, obviously, Billy Eichner's got a credit on the script as well. So, obviously, you can tell that he's writing a lot. And, 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 and just a lot of this just feels like he's pulling from, like, his personal life as 100%. well. And putting so much into this. But the other factor also I think that people are talking about, and this is also another reason why I think it's scoring so high with critics, is 
the Judd Apatow of it all. Because this, the other thing that this that this movie does extremely well is it is playing off of, again, pretty much what made every single successful comedy in the 2000s, which is Judd Apatow producing. Because the thing that people always forget is that while Apatow hasn't directed that many movies, he produced pretty much, although, like, you you pretty much pick a, pick a comedy that we love from the 2000s, you know, Anchorman, Superbad. Forgetting Sarah Marshall. There's a million and a half more that I'm that I'm that I'm not remembering off the top of my head. And Apatow pretty much had his name on it. And so the thing about it is that it, it had what it is that I love about all of his comedies, which is that it has those kind of like styles and sensibilities where it's like, okay, the, the scenarios might be getting more and more progressively ridiculous, but you can tell that it all comes from an element of truth, which I feel like a thing that so many comedies miss overall, which is why I think right. a lot of them don't end up working is because they try to be all about the shtick and the joke rather than the situation that they're in and just letting it play out naturally, you know? And for me, probably the biggest thing is, surprisingly enough, again, qualifying this, once again, not, not gay at all. How much I related to the two main characters overall, where it's like, okay, I perfectly understand kind of in a strange way, like where they're coming from, where where Billy Eichner is so uptight and neurotic and needs to control everything because he feels like so much of his life hasn't been in his control versus Luke McFarlane, who is still like kind of learning to be more comfortable with some of the more, uh, you know, obviously some of his more, you know, feminine side for lack of a better word, even though, you know, he is pretty comfortable with that. And just all the kind of the, the different scenarios that come in, all the wacky supporting characters, it really is like probably one of the most freshest feeling original comedies that I've seen in a while, you know? Yeah, and you know, not even coming to terms with his feminine side, but just being himself and right. and like dropping this facade. And I think that's why it works so well is because, you know, and that's one thing that I think is very successfully done is, you know, yes, it is a gay rom-com, but it is a rom-com and it's so relatable in so many ways that it breaks down that barrier of regardless of who is, who are in, who, the, the two people that are in these positions that you're watching, they're going through the same shit that like everyone goes through. Yes. Uh, and that that's what I think works here. Uh, you know, it's it's honest, it's genuine, and it's hilarious. Yes. And the other thing, too, also, is that, like, it also does what I, I think is kind of insane just for a rom-com is that it actually feels, like, modern in a strange way. You know, I feel like even for, like, the last, like, 10 years, like, a lot of rom-coms that were coming out, they just still felt like they were kind of repeating the same tropes over and like over again. Like in the again. 90s. <laughs> exactly. And, like, the whole thing with this is it's, like, it's very much apparent about, again, like, how the culture and, and the nightclub, and it's, like, much, much, much more open about just, like, group sessions and all that. Like, there are multiple scenes where it's, like, okay, three <laughs> ways, four ways, even five ways. I'm surprised I didn't get a freaking orgy here. And I'm, like, yeah, I was just loving it. I was loving every single minute of it, you know? And just, like, how comfortable and how being open... And like, obviously, again, like even handling like kind of the whole, for lack of a better word, the whole conservative edge to it as well, where they have the whole conversation, sit down with his mom, where it's like, and I love how too, they never, I, I mean, they, they have the moment, obviously, where it's like, okay, oh, you're trying to silence me, but they even managed to do that in a genuine way that doesn't feel forced, where it's like, I'm not asking you to be silent, I'm just asking you to like, you know, chill out for a minute, you know, but even that, right. again, it's addressing the characters directly. It, it's one of those situations where it's like, again, it really, like, obviously, again, the, the whole sexual edge to it obviously does matter here, but it's, again, it's one of those situations where, again, anybody could relate to it. Anybody could be stuck in those scenarios and relate to it, which, again, is what you want, not just from a great comedy, not just from a great rom-com, but what you want from a great movie in general. Yeah, absolutely, and the, I think the writing is, um, you know, top-notch there, whether, um, you know, Billy Eichner, it's his story that he came up with, yes. the writing was also done by Nicholas Stoller, who did Forgetting Sarah Marshall, and he also directed this movie as well. Um, so you have someone that's familiar with how to deliver these types of stories. You also, like you said, have Apatow behind it. I think it's just the perfect concoction to deliver a solid comedy that many people are referring to as the best comedy of the year. Uh, it's up there. Really it's between this and Unbreakable and Unbearable Way to Massive Talent for me. <laughs> well, you know which one wins out for me in that, that conversation, but... Same with me. You know pretty much which one works out for me there. We got a comment, you got a comment from John Cooper saying, you guys talking about this so positively makes me want to go see it so badly. Shame it's not out for another month here in Australia. Oh, man. Those foreign releases, man. I, I swear to God, I, I was literally just doing a podcast with Luke of Luke Reviews uh, last week on Don't Worry Darling, and I'm surprised, honestly, that he got it that early because like the, the foreign release schedules right. were when they get movies over there is nuts to say the least Crazy. but yeah no it's just oh man i just had such an absolute blast with this i want to talk about billy eichner for a second because billy eichner oh man that is somebody who again i have just been like kind of low-key rude for it's been kind of weird because the more that i realize it i'm like oh shit i think it's been almost a decade 
since I was introduced to him, you know, pretty much, oh, yeah. you know, it's funny. I, I, this week, I don't know what it is, but I've been having like a lot of flashbacks, a lot of memories that I'm going back to like, you know, 2013, 2014, you know, my high school years. And that's obviously right around when he burst out onto the scene in Parks and Rec, where Parks and Rec was just about to wrap up its run. It was only like its sixth season. And Billy Eichner comes in and to quote a guy that I was following online for a while, Dan Merle, he gives that show a shot in the arm because the energy that he brings to that show where he is just constantly neurotic and just yelling and energetic about everything. I'm like, who is that guy i want to know more about him and then obviously you know the whole billy on the street thing and it's so funny because it's one of those things where this is his first major studio movie like where he's the lead of it if i'm not mistaken but it feels like again he's just been such a part of our lives for like the last 10 years now that it, it's almost kind of amazing where it's like oh shit we almost have this like all, already have this like familiarity with this actor and with this kind of characterization but he's also like this is finally his chance to like finally for lack of a better word tell his story that it feels like you know he's only been able to deliver to us in bits and pieces so i just thought that that part of it was just really cool as well and, and different and like a way that i wasn't expecting where again it's like i'm watching somebody who i feel like i'm so familiar with and yet it feels like he's giving us this like whole new edge to it as well you know yeah yeah and it's also a, a chance for him to differentiate from what you see on billy on the street because that was his most popular thing for years and he even like revived some of it uh you know recently to promote bros which was hilarious but you're right. Parks and Recreation was kind of the big first big breakout when he I think his name was Craig in that. And I just yes! him Craig Middlebrooks. Yep. Um, but then he was in Neighbors 2. He was in a show called Difficult People that he created with. Um, oh, my gosh. I could forget her name. Um, let me see if I can pull it up real quick. Difficult People with um, Julie Klausner. Okay. Which was Wait, wasn't he also in that show Friends from College on Netflix that lasted for like two seasons? He was in Friends from College. Um, and he's gone on to have like some other roles. He did. Um, uh, oh my gosh, what's the most... So he did uh, a bunch of American Horror Story. That's um, right. Yeah, that's the one. And that, and, that, and that was when I was like, oh man, because that was when American Horror Story for me really started to fall off. And I'm like, oh man, Billy, I, you're so much better yeah. than this. What are you doing? Like, I, I get it, Ryan Murphy. He's the OG. But like, come on, man. You're so much better he, than this. He played Matt Drudge in American Crime Story. And then he did the voice of Timon in uh, the live The Lion King. Live, live action. action. Lion King, yes, live action. He was hilarious in. But uh, I, I've watched yeah. some clips from that. I'm so I still have to remind myself. Wow, that's a real thing. They actually that Disney <laughs> actually invested a shit ton of money and made uh, overall. But yeah, it's just it's one of those things where I hope that this leads to like more better work for him overall. Because again, he's been he really has been putting in the work these last ten years for sure. And this is like the first major thing in a while where I've watched him in and I'm like, wow, I really like this. And it kind of reminds me like what it is that I liked about him in the first place, you know? And. Yeah. <laughs> You talked about it a little bit before with Luke McFarlane, and I wanted to bring this up as well, where, again, the, the, the whole kind of interest and dynamic about it is, again, like, obviously, you know, breaking down a lot of, like, you know, kind of the cliches, a lot of the stereotypes that go into it as well. And I like how, again, like, they kind of both present, like, the opposite ends of the spectrum. One's the really, again, the really neurotic uptight one versus the more casual, and, like, I love how they call each other out on their nonsense and their BS where it's like, again, okay, you're only attracted to like dumb jocks, essentially, you know, it's like, you're, yeah. it's like, I'm definitely more into the whole, uh, more sensitive type. And I, I like how it's, again, it's like, oh my God, I, I, it's crazy how I'm talking about these things that should be like kind of par for the course as far as just in good filmmaking and good writing. Like it's a phenomenon because we just get so little of that nowadays. <laughs> but like the, the biggest thing that was such a shock for me is it's like, wow, yeah, people actually growing and maturing and changing throughout the course of a movie, you know, helping to make each other a little bit better as a result of it, you know? Oh my I God. Think, I think one of the things that it has going for it too is that it's telling a different story. I mean, it's the same story, but it's a different story right. because of who who is the focus. And we haven't gotten that. And I think that's really incredible. Right. And, not, and, you know, looking at what's coming down the road, not saying that bros completely uh, laid the groundwork for this, but, you know, there's a movie coming out in December called Spoiler Alert, and it's based on a book called Spoiler Alert, The Hero Dies. Um, and it's a memoir about a, a gay man who actually runs, I don't know if you um, are familiar with who Michael Osiello is. I don't think so. Work, he used to work for Entertainment Weekly and he runs TVLine.com, um, like all breaking news for TV stuff. Uh, but he, it's his story about like a relationship with a guy who has um, a terminal disease. And it, so that's coming out. But then they also just greenlit another movie that's based on a book called, uh, I think it's called The Gunkle, you know, Gay Uncle. Right. Uh, but it's like now we're starting to get those stories. And that's what we saw. That's what we see is is successful down the road. Like, I've talked about this on the podcast with Sean a lot. 
but there's all these studies out there that we've seen that like people want to see themselves in movies right right they they want to see like you know able to identify or uh yeah able to identify with a character that's on the screen and they end up making the money down the road and are in the the uh, best interest of the studios to do we've gotten a lot of diversity in terms of the films that have come out and we're seeing different stories and that's what's neat this is just another step in that that i'm really excited for the part that worries me is will it be seen because right now it's trending for like probably like a five million debut if even that um which makes me nervous but it's i think the quality is there and when you have quality in a film like this usually it has uh some legs and some staying power so hopefully that works out because again at the end of the day it's a funny ass movie yes uh and that's i think what it really has going for it yeah absolutely yeah again it, it just sucks because even though again ever all all anybody wants to talk about this year is Top Gun. Unfortunately, it still seems like that's the... It still feels like, again, that's the story of the whole year, where it feels like every single other movie is still struggling to make the money at the box office. And it's like... Because even the, when even the Marvel movies, which those are doing well, but those are all getting critically torn apart for the most part. And I think rightfully so, because, again, just the quality there is just not there the way that it has been in past years. So... I don't know. Like, obviously, we've always talked about the idea that it doesn't, unfortunately, take quality in order to make box office. But definitely, I'm hoping that down the road, kind of the again, it's the idea of what we've always talked about, what has always made movies successful: familiar stories that have a new edge to them. And this is and this checks all of those boxes and more for sure. So I'm, I'm definitely hoping that this can crack the box office because you're right. It's it, it, it's unfortunately it's not looking to have done very well despite it getting so critically and enjoyed. So who knows? Maybe that could mean more once it hits to it on uh once it hits on vod but again it's like oh it's just continually frustrated this idea of again like ever, all these studios are trying to push things towards you know going into theaters again in order to try and push audiences back into theaters but right. unfortunately it's like ha has covid officially killed that forever are audiences too comfortable with watching stuff at home on theaters who knows you know because uh, because we're still we, we, it still feels like we're having that push pull back and forth. You know, again, we just came off September, which is notoriously a terrible box office month because people are going back to school in general. We're getting into October. We're getting into spooky season. Uh, you know, we're, you know, we still have, spooky season. Uh, as everyone is calling it, you know, again, we've got a couple more ones that could draw people. Halloween end is going direct to Peacock. So unfortunately I think that screwed itself, but we have Black Adam at the end of the month, which Warner Brothers is hoping we'll get it. We'll make them somewhat more of enough money to get them more out of debt. In addition to getting the tax write-offs on Batgirl and all the other movies that they, and all the other, movies and series that they've just been canceling nonstop. Warner Brothers is such a mess right now, as if that hasn't been apparent for the last six years, but it's even more obvious now. So, absolutely. Uh, absolutely. <laughs> listen, all I know is that, look, while Warner Brothers is scrambling for the scrap, Universal could come in and essentially take over. You know, they've got, because Universal's got, I think, a pretty good slate coming out. You know, they've got the Christopher Nolan movie coming out next year. So, hopefully, they've got they've got a couple more things. You know, they've got a Christopher Nolan, they've got a Fast and the Furious movie coming out this year. Jurassic World still did very, very well. Um, earlier on this year. So we'll see. Universal could have a decent amount of good stuff going for them. So final star ratings before we get into the second movie that we're talking about today, Joe. I gave this a five out of five. Um, I had a lot of fun with it. I uh, really like everything about it. And I sat on it for a little while because this is one that I was really looking forward to. And I didn't want to, you know, jump the gun and just give it, you know, I, I wanted to think about it and make sure that it was delivering the way that I, I was thinking the day I saw it. Um, and I wasn't just rating it high because I wanted it to be good, but I really enjoy it and I am recommending it to absolutely everyone. No, same. I, I couldn't agree with that more. It's not quite there because, again, I'm, you know how stringent I am just with movies in general. It's very, very rare that a movie can get a five from me just in general, especially in today's day and age if it's not in everything everywhere all at once or an on the count of three. But yeah, this this is just an absolute blast for me. I had well, so and you, much you do halves too, right? I do halves, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Come on. I've been doing halves since I started doing this, but yeah, no. I don't do have so if it goes above. Oh, uh, okay. I see. I see. I see. That's why. Yeah. No. I. I just. I had so much fun with this movie. This is easily one of the most entertained. I just had a big goofy smile on it on my face. It's one of those movies where it's like again. I feel like I don't have to talk about it that much because it, the movie just speaks for itself. So yeah. Four and easy, easy four and a half out of five for me. One of the easiest ratings that I've given for a movie all year. I think the rewatch factor is going to be really high on this. Thing. I agree. I agree. One thousand percent. Like this is another, this is one of the few movies where I was like, wow, I'm actually like kind of really excited to rewatch this once I yeah. eventually get a chance, you know, now let's get into the second movie that we're talking about today, which is <sighs> Blonde. Now, before we actually get into the movie, this is what we're like, I got to talk about the building to it because 
So, so this is from a director that is, I, I feel like for anybody who's not in our circles would probably not know about, and that's Andrew Dominic. So this is the guy who directed Chopper in 2000. He directed The Assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford in 2007, which was weirdly low-key the year of the Western, because between that movie, No Country for Old Men, There Will Be Blood, and the remake of 310 to Yuma, I'm like, okay, 2007 was just on a Western kick. I don't know what was going on that year. Um, and then obviously directed, uh, I think the kind of critically underrated, but saw a little bit more of a cult following in the cult in the coming years of that being Killing Them Softly, starring Brad Pitt, uh, in 2012. It was one of the last movies that James Gandolfini was in before he died. And so around that time was when this movie got greenlit for its production. It's been through a little bit of production hell in the last 10 years. Obviously Brad Pitt was producing this movie as well. It was, it was obviously, again, it was based off of the Marilyn Monroe novel by Joyce Carol Oates. And if, if memory serves, I believe that there was a little bit of, um, what's it called? A little bit of debating as far as the accuracy of some of the stuff that went down overall. But essentially the pitch for this movie was get ready for the dark side of Marilyn, of one of, you know, America's icons, you know, of Marilyn Monroe, you know? And I can safely say that going into this movie, oh, I'm sorry, coming out of this movie, the overall critical reception seems to be pretty divided. As far as there are some people who enjoy the artistic take and approach that, the, that this movie went for, and there are others that are like, this movie's kind of a mess, it's overly long, it's overly repetitive, the, the sequencing makes no sense overall, and... I'll say that as far as where I land, I land probably somewhere in the middle because there's a lot of stuff that I liked about this movie. There's a lot of stuff that I did not like about this movie, but I, I saw that you were not the biggest fan of this movie overall, so I, I needed to get your take on that first and foremost before we dove into this. There's absolutely nothing to offer in this movie <laughs> that, that, that tells a proper story of Marilyn Monroe. So the book that it's based on is fictionalized, and a, a lot of it is. And they've, they're very clear about that. Joyce Carol Oates was very clear about that. Um, so a lot of this movie is fictionalized. But what bothered me is that while it stuck to a lot of the, uh, the situations that are presented in the book and presented them um, in almost a fetishized way, like it was like kind of like torture porn in a weird way. Uh, because everything that she went through in this film, it was just like her darkest moments. Right. Um, which really bothered me because they didn't, it didn't culminate in a point. It didn't yes. tell you, or it didn't give you the opportunity to say like, oh, she made it through all this or, oh, she, this is what led to her death. But what were the, like, I guess it does that latter part, but what are the successes? We don't see any of the successes. We don't see any of the stuff that, Really, I guess, you know, if I was a Marilyn Monroe family member or a state member, I would want to see put on screen to showcase the woman that she was and not just the turbulent moments. All we get in this is two and a half, two hours and 40 minutes of turbulent times, um, which is probably about 45 minutes too long uh, and probably could have been cut down a lot. I don't like at all how they presented her um, without, uh, again, without a point. Yeah, the, the biggest thing for me going into this is that, so Andrew Dominic famously has also directed several episodes of Mindhunter as well, which clearly means that David Fincher sees something in him, because David Fincher, again, is, is very, very kind of, I, I think he's one of those filmmakers, and one of the few filmmakers that really understands, like, straddling the line between, like, movies and TV, and what I can say is that I understand where you're coming from, for sure, but for me, the whole thing was, is that, like, I, I kind of enjoyed, overall, in a strange way, like, seeing... Obviously, not just, like, the, the graphic gratuitousness, but I liked how it kind of was almost trying to take a perspective. And this is a really tricky thing that biopics often have because, again, the, the biopic kind of formula, for lack of a better word, has become so known at this point, and people are, like, almost predicting the beat that it's very... I find that it's one of those movies that's very, very hard to get across, like, a different kind of perspective. And while I definitely see where you're coming from a lot as far as, like, yeah, kind of the torch porn elements, there really isn't a positive moment to be enjoyed at in this movie. It's one of those things where I feel like in a strange way, like, the truth still shines through the fiction, where the whole thing that's always been talked about with Marilyn Monroe's life is the idea of it's like, yeah, her life was kind of pain and misery from the entire, for, you know, pretty much from minute one. The fact that she really never had this chance of, really had this chance of innocence. You know, she's trying to maintain this innocent facade and this innocent kind of mindset throughout like kind of this very turbulent and very like toxic time in Hollywood. And I, I don't know, I think there's something kind of really to be commendable there, if that makes any sense, where it's like, I don't know. It, it's really tricky because I don't want to come off like a sadist, essentially, where it's like, oh, I kind of like like seeing like the you know the more darker elements. But I don't know. There, I always find it interesting when filmmakers aren't afraid to show like at all. And while again, yes, this definitely 
delves a little bit more so on the gratuitous side. I think I, I found my biggest problem that I have when it comes to movies like this is just kind of the repetitive nature of it, where it's like, okay, how many times are we going to have to see her go through like shitty situation after shitty, shitty situation, you know? And as artistic as this movie was, and I thought this movie was art, like beautifully artistic. Like I love the way it was shot. I love the way it was edited. I don't know. Like I, I love movies when it's like, I can like kind of place you inside the character's heads. Uh, and I think that th this movie did that really well as far as like kind of making her come out where it's like, yeah, th there was never really a moment where she was kind of like mentally stable, if that makes any sense, you know? And I think that even though, again, it's tragic to watch for sure, there being something kind of really inherently truthful to that, I don't know. It, it definitely kind of like, like I just found there to be some appeal there for sure. I, I get that. I think that's right. I, what I would want to see if I was someone sitting, you know, in post-production saying, hey, we need to go back and film additional scenes is putting a little bit more of the positive in there. Yes. Um, not just because like we need that, but I think the film needed that in order to accurately convey all the turmoil that she was going through with um, instead of just showing it. Like, I feel like there, the thing that bothered me most is that it does jump around a lot. It is a very oddly constructed film. Yes. Um, it works in terms of the visuals. And Ana de Armas, her performance is fantastic. But there's, again, it doesn't really, I, I still can't tell what the intent was other than just showing these moments and how tragic they were. Because even the final, you know, when she dies, spoiler alert, um, when she dies, it's still like a very... It lacks a punch, I would say. Um, and I I would feel like in a movie like this where you're talking about the turmoil that an individual went through, you want to build up to a moment that is like, you know, the climax or the, you know, the final moments where she she succumbs to all the trauma. Um, but what you did here or what they did here instead of uh, in not allowing for time to explore the other aspects of her is made her one dimensional in all the trauma that she was going through uh, and didn't didn't redeem her. Not that everyone needs to have redemption, but she is an individual in reality and in, in the world that could, you know, she did have redemption. There, there were positive aspects to her career and what was going on, but they didn't allow that part of her to be shown. Instead, it just focuses on the absolute negative worst moments of her life and kind of plays her out to be a crazy person in a way with like the stuff with her dad and all that. Uh, it just it missed the mark for me in so many ways. Yeah, it, it's a tricky thing to do, obviously, especially given that, like you said, and I think the thing that hurts it the most, which is something that I did not know about, is the fact that the book itself was largely fictionalized. And like I said, that's a, that is a really tricky, hard, like, push-pull back and forth to do is when you're doing a fictional take on a real-life character. You know, I feel like almost there, there are some similarities that can be said here. For I remember there were a lot of criticisms, criticisms like this lobbied against the winning time, the Lakers show that came mm -hmm. out earlier on this year at HBO, where specifically with something, a lot of episodes in the second half of the show where it felt where they were changing a lot of stuff from history in order to dramatize it. But it's like almost like, okay, what really is the purpose for this overall? Absolutely. You know? And well I, well, well, I will say that, like, again, here, like, I understand that the purpose is to show that, yeah, her life sucked. You know, she pretty much, again, it was the fact that because she was missing this crucial foundational piece of her life, you know, her mother being crazy and potentially passing down this mental illness to her and her never knowing her father, her growing up with this fantasy of her father that ultimately was then broken at such a young age. And then she pretty much spent the rest of her life trying to chase after and reclaim that fantasy and ultimately only ended up suffering more for it. I think that there's something there where... It's like, okay, the, I think there is something there to that. But again, it's that it's another thing that I see a lot of movies fall into, which is that when they're trying to play up someone's life as a tragedy, it ends up co inherently coming off as repetitive. And I'm like, there's only so much that you can make an audience empathize with the character before they ultimately start to kind of see, okay, this is just the same thing happening over and over again. And what that ultimately does is that ultimately reflects negatively on the main character because the audience as they form this subliminal connection with the character, they're like, okay, if these things keep happening over and over and over again, you know, yeah, sure, the situation is shitty, but at what point is this character going to start to take accountability? And that never happened. And I think that what you're getting at, and which I think is ultimately the problem of this movie, is that there's never a point where the character has some accountability with herself, you know? I feel like there's a, there's a moment where they can have that with the Arthur Miller, with the Arthur Miller portrayal. You know, obviously once Adrian Brody comes in the movie, but then that kind of just goes away and you kind of just drifts back into stardom. And it's like that, I feel like is kind of where the problems are, you know? 
I think that's kind of that's an interesting take. I think there's a lot of problems there in terms of there's a lot within the film where they could have explored. There's a yes. lot of potential things there. I would argue that the director had no idea or no intent to explore any other themes yes. putting this on the screen. Yeah, and that also, also connects back to his previous movies as well, but I'll, I'll wait to get into that. Well, and some of the interviews that he's done afterwards just really uh, major question mark about why he tackled this. Um, I, I don't know. I, I feel like this whole time, this whole film shows her as a victim of the circumstances that she's placed in, whether that's in a casting room with a, you know, a studio exec, um, or, you know, the childhood and stuff like that. So to say, like, it doesn't show her taking accountability is, is, is interesting because I think they could have gotten to a point of, like, you know, what did she do to help herself in terms of the past childhood trauma and stuff? But the rest of it is just displaying how terrible society can be and especially right. was at the time. But uh, so it displays that. It shows the impacts. It doesn't do anything with it. And that's what is most fascinating to me. There's no... No messaging here, um, aside from let me take what was on the on the page in the book and put it on screen. Right. I, I just think it was terribly handled. And the other thing too that is like confusing to me, to say the least. So obviously, again, it shows a kind of a romantic. It basically, like I said, the way that this movie is structured, and like and like you said, like I said, the editing is really haphazard because there's no kind of gradual evolution. The movie is just constantly slamming you from scene to scene to scene, from sequence to sequence to sequence, with kind of no rhyme or reason. There's no really interesting transitional period there. You know, you don't really get a whole lot of the iconic moments, and when they do, they're shot from like a weird warp perspective. You know, obviously inserting Anna to Armas into previous footage and so you know obviously you get her relationships with Lou DiMaggio with, with Joe DiMaggio and with Arthur Miller portrayed respectively by Bobby Cannavale and Adrian Brody and then you have also have this thing earlier on in the film where again she essentially had this polymer uh what's it called polygamous relationship with Charlie Chaplin Jr. and Edward G. Robinson Jr. and that and, and essentially like I said they're trying to carry through this footnote this theme of where again like the lack of a father figure in her life and so, obviously, again, that reflects it all over relationships with men. So they're attempting to use that as a continuous note throughout the movie. You know, again, how she refers reflectively to all of her, you know, all the males in her life as daddy overall. And, like, I don't really know what they're trying to go with there as far as it's, like, again, like, trying to create this, like, this edible complex, essentially. But then you have this thing where about halfway through the movie, she starts receiving letters from somebody claiming to be her father. And then at the end, it's revealed to be, like, Charlie Chaplin Jr. And Edward G. Robinson Jr. tells her this after he dies and that's what causes her to overdose it's like I, that's just one of those things where it's like again that feels just a little bit too cutesy for a movie like this ultimately you know but what also bothers me with that is that that complete that thruple was completely made up there's not a there's no evidence that that ever happened number one and there's no evidence that charlie chaplin jr and the other guy were, were gay you know so that whole that whole piece of it when you're making a biopic and you dive into some such a fictionalized corner of a film that is that's a pretty big scene and pretty you know wild insinuations there it just completely takes me out of it yeah absolutely and like that it didn't take me out of it because again the biggest thing that th this always happens with me when it comes to movies that where i'm not necessarily sure of what's real and what's not like i i have no idea like, again like marilyn monroe's story is one that i'll say i'm probably not as familiar with as i should have been the biggest thing that i knew about her obviously was that again she just had a very very difficult life you know, going in Hollywood again. It was Hollywood in the 50s, so I can also obviously we just know, like, kind of, you know, what the systems of power were in place and what that perpetuated. I knew obviously about her affair with JFK, and this portrayed that. And again, it's just a very, very gratuitous way where I'm the, again, one of my friends is asking, it's like, oh, how was the movie? And I'm like, what well, was a gratuitous rape scene about 20 minutes in? And I'm like, how, how are you supposed to get people to watch that? Now, again, it's another one of the situations where, again, Netflix gave however much money to an artistic filmmaker. It's a filmmaker that's worked with them before. And again, usually when you get like a really acclaimed filmmaker, which I do consider Andrew Dominic to be one of those guys, usually once you throw a filmmaker a lot of money like that, then you usually get something really interesting and really artistic. And this is just one of those situations where, again, like I think I understood what the point was for sure. I think that I understood what he was trying to go for, but I just, I don't think it necessarily jives that well with, um, what's it called? You, you know, kind of with the subject matter. Where, but again, it's like I don't even necessarily know if this even qualifies as something that people were asking for because again, it's not. Again, I don't know how many people were necessarily asking for a Marilyn Monroe biopic, if that makes any sense. You know, like because correct me if I'm wrong, this isn't the first Marilyn Monroe thing that we've ever gotten, right? There's been a bunch throughout, like throughout history, just in general. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's 
I, I, so I struggle with calling it a biopic. Well, I don't <laughs> because, even know if it qualifies as that. Right. So I don't know. I think at the end of the day, I just I still don't understand the intentions behind it. Um, and that's kind of where I, I leave it because it I, I just didn't I didn't care for what they did. I, I don't know. I, I like what was Dominic's intent here in putting this forward? Um, and Netflix, the fact that they signed off on it like that. Well, and then, there was a lot of back and forth behind the scenes as well, where Netflix finally signed off on this. They made the movie, and then there was a lot of problems. There were, I believe this was originally meant to come out last year, and then they pushed it and kept pushing it because the film ended up getting so gratuitous that they had to give it an NC-17. I'm pretty sure this is the first NC-17 film that Netflix has ever produced. And it was probably a thing where it's like, Netflix was probably expecting this to be an Oscar movie. And then they watched the, they started watching like some of the cuts of this, and they were like, Oh my God, like who is going to be able to watch this? Who is this made for ultimately? You know, where it, and, and I feel like at the end of the day, like it is like, it's almost like a surrealist art film at most points, essentially, you know? And and so like, like well, I do think those movies for sure have their merit. Again, those movies are really, really tough to market to an audience, especially predominantly, you know, the, the audience that Netflix goes for. Now, as far as the thing with Andrew Dominant, because again, I feel like his last movie that he did, Killing Them Softly, which is so crazy to me that it's been a decade since that movie. I, that is a movie that I remember really, really enjoying. But I remember the criticism for that movie at the time basically came around to the, again, kind of a similar idea where it's like, okay, they're essentially attempting to tell this crime story and they're setting it against the backdrop of the 08 crisis and they're going out of their way to show, you know, that, again, that, that the 08 crisis is affecting all this, where, again, we're showing a bunch of criminals who are down in their luck and essentially kind of attempting to pull off this grand heist. But essentially, he's trying to show it as, you know, again, it's really not that glamorous. It's kind of shitty, you know, living this kind of lifestyle. Most of these people are broke. Most of these people are kind of dumb. You know, if, if not, they're hardened killers that have kind of been, like, you know, hardened to life. They don't really have any of these... Uh, you know, kind of moral compasses or anything. Right. You know, there, there's nothing. Essentially, trying to take the glitz and the glam out of it. You know, and I know that that works for some people, and that can kind of be a little bit of a turnoff. And I think that's what he was attempting to go for here, as far as just attempting to per portray a uh, what's it called, you know, the story of a Hollywood icon without any of the glitz and the glam, and essentially trying to tell a story for like a time that you know, as for like what it actually was like. You know, I, I'm assuming because, again, that's just been the consistent thing across this entire filmography. But I feel like this is the first instance where I really, really don't necessarily understand if that was the, the right, if this was the right movie to do that for, you know. So I, I, I still... <laughs> I still think there's a lot of stuff to be enjoyed to be enjoyed here. If that makes sense. Like you said, Anna DeArmas's performance is great. I think that again, kind of the whole dreamlike aspect of it all. I think there's something that there was definitely something there as well. Where again, kind of the whole bouncing back and forth. I thought there was this one aspect where again, I wish the movie had gone for it more. Where it's bouncing back and forth between okay, she's losing the ability to distinguish between what's real and what's not. I feel like that they hunkered down on that more. I think there could have been a little bit more something to that, you know, kind of showing that it's like, again, she's not necessarily in control of everything, you know, the idea that it's, again, essentially there are people that are running her life for her. And I feel like they had that in the first half of the movie. And then as the movie continued to go on, I feel like they didn't, I feel they started to get away from that, you know, and I definitely the runtime itself did not help. But again, this movie's pushing three hours. I think you given that the two hour and 40 minute runtime is generous. You know, this is two hours and 47 minutes. It's a long runtime. And it's like, again, I just feel like there have been, way too many movies recently that have just been way too long overall and i'm like look they, they gotta again it's like they gotta do what hayao miyazaki did when he sent that samurai sword to harvey weinstein <laughs> back in 97 when princess butter okay they're like they got to get they, they got to cut some more out you know which is ironic because i'm realizing now that, that that's completely antithetical because when he told when he said that to harvey weinstein he, he the, the whole thing was that he wasn't cutting anything out of princess butter okay but princess butter okay was only two hours this is Three hours long. And I and it's like again, how many times are we gonna have to see like her get, you know, get abused by a man, get, you know, get taken advantage of, you know, start to lose her grip on reality. It's like it was getting old and repetitive at about like 40, 40 to 45 minutes in. I yeah. think that they cut this down. I feel like if they could have gotten to something a little bit more, I think, tangible, a little bit more concrete. I think they could have had something really interesting on their hands here. But as it is, I I I don't necessarily know if this works. Now, what I will say is again. I definitely will say that when I finish this, I'm like, okay, it's one of those kind of bittersweet movies. You know, I, I can kind of appreciate this for something that in a strange way that like I'm only going to enjoy that not a lot of other people are going to. You know, I, I can safely say that because there's always that movie where it's like, I don't know, you know, I feel like between that and Don't Worry Darling. I'm like, yeah, these are the movies that, again, just were kind of in a strange way doomed from the minute they were greenlit just because of all the behind the scenes stuff. And I'm like, you know what? If I'm going to be the one guy that likes them, 
sure, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll die on that hill. I've done that before for certain movies, you know? More um, power to you. Oh, yeah, like I said. So so that's why, again, I don't necessarily hate it. Also, I will say that, like, I don't know, Anna the Armist, just in the past couple of years, I feel like has been that actress that, I feel like it's just been right on the cusp of being great, but it feels like every single movie that I've seen her in, I'm like, I feel like there's always somebody that could be just a little bit better than her, you know? Like, I feel like it is strange where, like, I'm surprised that Issa Gonzalez hasn't market corrected her, because Issa Gonzalez is that actress where every time I see her in something, I'm like, yes! I'm like, this is kind of what Anna de Armas should be. These are the types of roles that Anna de Armas, but that like should be going for, you know? And Issa Gonzalez comes in and just wipes the floor with it. I don't know. Like, I saw a movie called Ambulance, uh, obviously, earlier this year that Luke and I reviewed. And uh, Issa Gonzalez in that movie, I'm just like, yes, overall. But it's like, Anna de Armas and Knives Out, I'm like, okay. Her and Blade Runner 2049, I'm like, Okay, it's crazy because I keep forgetting that the first time I saw her was as Miles Teller's wife in War Dogs, which is still baffling, <laughs> which is still baffling to me in hindsight, just that, that that was a thing overall. And, and War Dogs, I still think, is an incredibly underrated movie. But you know what I'm saying? Where it's like, I feel like she's constantly just right on the cusp of being great. You know, strangely enough, I feel like her best part so far has been, you know, like her her 10 minutes that she was in the, in the Bond movie last year. I was going to say that. I totally agree. And that's the best that she's been in a movie so far. And she's in that movie for 10 minutes and then leaves. And it's like, no, bring her back. You know, finally, we, we finally got it, you know? And, and this was, again, another one where it's like, again, any other year, like this would be an easy shooting for an Oscar. But as of now, it's like, yeah, this movie's not going to get anything. This movie's going to get, they, they, I don't even know how many people are going to watch this movie overall. Netflix is going to just dump this on their platform. They literally, they literally said, they're like, yeah, this was a dump for them. They had no intention of marketing this. Not that Netflix markets anything ever, but they had no intention of marketing this. They had absolutely no intention of putting this out for a broad appeal audience. So, yeah. They were, screen they were screening it with critics groups, though. I'll tell you that much. Well, they, 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 they were indeed. But again, they, they do that. I feel like that, that kind of becomes obligatory for movies to come out in this time of the year. So I feel like Blonde is kind of the next in a line of awards bait movies that we can do. We can't kind of kick it off with Don't Worry Darling last weekend. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna, probably going to be having Sean on next weekend in order to break down some early Oscar predictions as well. And I can safely say that Blonde is probably not going to be anywhere on those lists, unfortunately, despite the fact that I thought that there was a decent amount of good stuff in there. For me, again, I, I it's one of those movies where, again, I want to put it at a four just for me, but I can't because of all the problems that go into it. So even though there was still a lot here that I liked, I unfortunately can only give it a three and a half out of five, which I know is still going to be way higher than anything that you give it. So Joe, break it down for us. What is your final thoughts and start ratings for? I don't, um, I don't give, I don't give movie zeros. Um, I believe that every movie at some point has, you know, some artistic value to it and it was someone's vision. So, um, you know, who am I to, to shit on that? But in, in saying that, I gave this a one out of five. <laughs> I'm like, that was like one of the lowest ratings that you ever give it. And usually, like I said, I know that again, we, we agree, we agree on a lot. We disagree on a lot, but that was one of those things where I saw that when I'm like, Oh no, like I, I, saw, one, I saw someone gave it a rating of no out of 10. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. I love when people get do stuff like that. That always gives me a chuckle. And Sean said something along the lines of like, Netflix is now playing on, uh, I'm sorry, Blonde is now playing on Netflix and also on repeat in the six and seven circles of hell. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, our, our, what's it called? This one person who's been in the comments on Lucas Marcus uh, Legsdins uh, said he gave Guy Ritchie swept away a zero out of five. And I'm like, well, Lucas, what I will say is that if there was ever a movie that deserved a zero out of five, it that's, would be that that's movie. Luke. It, it, that's Luke. it is? Yeah, that's Luke. Wait a minute. Wait, Luke, what did you change your YouTube handle? What's going on here? <laughs> What happened? But anyways, Joe, before we got out of here, I would be remiss. Oh uh, come on. Oh you knew I was going to do it. You knew oh I was going to do it. Listen, I would be remiss if I did not mention. So obviously we know that obviously in the first movie we reviewed today, Bros, obviously Jim Rash didn't have a pretty big part, but he had, I think, a pretty decent and rather comedic part as the bisexual member on the LGBTQ, um, what's it called? Uh, on the LGBTQ museum board panel, you know? And as we know, Jim Rash is... The, an alumni of not just my favorite, not just a lot of people's favorites, but the greatest sitcom ever, ever made, even with its lackluster last couple of seasons, the greatest, smartest, funniest sitcoms ever made. Oh, man, I'm getting the black screen there. Oh, man, I, I already know I'm off to a great start. And we can safely say that this past week they officially announced on Twitter, I'm assuming they timed this just around the time when Donald Glover was wrapping up with Atlanta, that it is finally indeed happening, people. Six seasons and a motherfucking movie. We're getting it. Community movie next year, 2023, on the Peacock. The whole cast is coming back. 
I don't know if the Russo brothers are directing it, but good lord, I hope that they are. I hope that they can come on. Is Dom talking about Modern Family? No, Luke, but that's a close one. Oh, man, just happy, happy, happy day is all I'm going to say. It only took eight years, but we're finally getting it. You know, we had this resurgence during the pandemic. And, Joe, I mean, just with the amount of time that I tortured you with this show and how much I love it during the pandemic, I mean, I had to bring it up. You know, I had to. I just had to. Um, I'm very happy for you. That was my first thought. <laughs> when, it was, when it was announced, I was like, oh boy, Dom's going to be on a you know, high horse here. I still think uh, that I, I, I still think that your Instagram post that you made was both hilarious and, and, and very fortunate where you're like, somebody check to make sure that he's still living. I just remember I saw that on Twitter. And I think I almost, I, I, I think it was one of those where I just stopped and just like fist pumped and cheered in the middle of like a crowded hallway. And people started looking at me. They're just like, what is going on? And of course, again, and then I have to explain to them the whole thing about community, which of course I'm happy to do. Because I'll explain community to everyone. Because once again, I, I say greatest sitcom ever. Screw the office. Must I love Parson Rack. How much your mother? Get out of here. Greatest sitcom ever made, even with the slackluster last couple of seasons. And nobody will ever get me to change my mind on that at all. Well, listen, I have to put a plug in for another sitcom right now that's that's out. Um, because you brought it up and because I've, I've binge-watched the first couple of episodes. There's a show on Hulu called Reboot. Um, yeah, how is that, by the way? From the creators of Modern Family. It is hilarious. It is okay. so well done. And it's very, like, the humor is so subtle. Uh, but it's it just the first episode is a pilot. Remember that we keep going because it is so funny. All it's right. So damn funny. All right. Yeah. It, it, it's funny. I don't know what it is just because again, just because the amount of times that again, I swipe up on one TikTok and then it just starts playing the same TikToks, but like TikToks, yeah. like TikToks have just been playing me clips from like a bunch of sitcoms that I used to watch back in the day. A lot of, you know, a lot of modern family, a lot of two and a half men. And a lot of it is mostly reminding me. It's like, Oh yeah, there is a reason why I did love sitcoms back then. I haven't watched sitcoms in a while. And I don't know. I started watching this sitcom. Uh, from 2016 with Ian McKellen and Derek Jacoby called Vicious, which is basically just those two living in a flat and just making fun of each other the entire time, but it's so classically British and it's just so dry and so funny, and it's so strange to see Ewan Rand, a.k.a. Ramsey Bolton, just pop up as, like, just this random, like, younger guy who just interacts with them and it's just kind of naive and innocent. It's just so weird to watch that, but it's absolutely hilarious and i'm like huh I might, I might have to get back into some sitcoms you know i've forgotten like what it's like to like actually like enjoy things to laugh at them you know also this is talking tv after all it is talking tv after all you are 100 right it's kind of weird and, and it's weird because this is like the first year because movies just kind of went away this year despite it being two years since the pandemic and so we were just non-stop talking about tv so it's kind of interesting that we actually like had a couple of movies to talk about you know one good one kind of eh, but you know, it happens. You're, you're, you're not going to get wins every time. It's just nice to actually get movies that people actually watch. But with that being said, people, thank you once again for joining us for another episode of the Talking TV Podcast. We'll be back next week to talk about either one of two things I'll either be talking about uh, going over some early Oscars predictions with Sean, or we'll be talking about Andor with Chris at his Columbus Day. So kind of stay tuned for that. And then we have Halloween Ends and Black Adam before we end it with our Halloween special before we have the last two months of the year. Again, still hard to believe that we're already almost done with 2020, 2022. 2020. This, 2020, exactly. <laughs> oh, man. One of my infamous Freudian slips. Joe, where can the good people follow you on the interwebs? You can find all my accounts on guyatomovies.com, but mainly active on Guy to Movies on Instagram. And, of course, follow me at Movie Nerd Reviews across all platforms. Be sure to follow the official Talking TV podcast across all platforms. Again, community is coming back, so an honor to honor six seasons and a movie, 12 seasons in a short film, people, and watch more fucking movies and TV. We'll see you guys next time.